0: It's time for America Outdoors Radio, the show that covers the outdoor scene across the U.S. of A. and the entire continent. Fishing, hunting, conservation, outdoor recreation, and great destinations. We cover it all every week. It's your country,
1: your outdoors. Let's explore it together with your host, John Cruz. I'm going to start things off saying congratulations to the winners of our Work Sharp Guided Field Sharpener giveaway that we did last week. We gave away three of these great knife sharpeners, and the winners were Steve from Cottage Grove, Oregon, Mike from Chehalis, Washington, and Albert from Boise, Idaho. Thanks to everyone else who entered, and if you want to keep up on our giveaways, be sure to like and follow Our Facebook page at America Outdoors Radio because if you happen to miss the show, you can find out about our giveaways there as well. Speaking of the show, we've got a great one for you this week, and with fall officially here, we'll be focusing on hunting and conservation. One guest you'll hear from in just a few minutes is Ryan Hoover, he's the director of Handgun Hunters International. This organization is all about getting folks hunting with handguns. I'll admit, I don't know a whole lot about this, but I'm about to get an education on this subject, and along the way, Ryan is going to bust a few myths I've held to be true when it comes to hunting with handguns. Another guest you'll hear from today is Trevor Hubs. He is on the staff with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, that great organization that is all about advocating for our public lands and our ability to hunt and fish and recreate on these lands. A few years ago, BHA launched their Armed Forces Initiative program meant to get active duty military service personnel as well as reservists and veterans around military installations into the fold of BHA. The program has been a resounding success and Trevor will tell you how fast it's grown, and some of the events military BHA members have been taking part in lately. And let's not forget about bird hunting. If you're a bird hunter, there's a good chance you've got a bird dog. And we'll be joined towards the end of the program today by Dr. Jay Brecky. He is a veterinarian in Colorado who wrote a great article in the latest On the Wing newsletter from Pheasants Forever highlighting an injury to his German short hair pointer, suffered in the Rocky Mountains during a ptarmigan hunt and how a carry kit of first aid supplies Jay carried with him made all the difference for that dog. On top of this, we've got a couple of more 'er ne'er-do-wells walking our trail of shame who were guiding without a license in northeast Oregon for 10 years. These two not only got caught, but they lost a couple of the horses, or should I say mules, they rode in on. Before we get into all of this, though, let's introduce you to our first guest who knows quite a bit about whitetail deer hunting. Let's talk deer hunting, and specifically, let's talk about some of the best days you want to be in the field if you're a whitetail deer hunter. With us here to tell you more about it is Scott Bestel, the man who wrote an article about this that you can find at FieldAndStream.com. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, John. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to talk with you. So you are recommending certain days hunters ought to be in the field for white-tailed deer and they're all related to the rut for our listeners who are not deer hunters or just getting into the sport of deer hunting why is the rut
2: a great time to be in the field if you want to harvest a deer yeah, a great question. And sometimes, you know, us whitetail geeks kind of overlook the basics. But yeah, the rut is probably the time of the year that, or I would say the time of the year when deer are most active. It's their breeding season. And so bucks, which are, you know, highly coveted by deer hunters are, they're the most active that they'll be all year. They're out there looking for girlfriends and uh, moving a lot during daylight. And so it just kind of creates a, just kind of a perfect storm for, for guys that are looking for deer.
1: You know, it's funny, uh, an expert deer hunter I know out here in the West, he says, the rut's the time to be out there because the deer are just stupid. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, they can do some blundering that they wouldn't do at other times of the year, that's for sure. And uh, So yeah, it's a good time to be out there uh, waiting for them to make a mistake. In this article you have in Field the Stream, you
1: actually have specific days, not weeks, not months, but days detailed as the best ones to hunt during the rut, ranging from October into December, do these dates apply equally for Western, Midwest, and Eastern hunters?
2: I would say, you know, there's there's always regional variations to, you know, to rutting activity in, in whitetails and, and mule deer. So I would say that they're, they're representative of general time frames when it's really good. But, you know, I would say on a broad basis across much of whitetail range, they're pretty accurate. Let's talk about the
1: first day you've got marked down as one of the best. October 23rd. Why did you choose that day? Did
2: you throw a dart and hit that in the calendar? Actually, I have a team of highly trained chimpanzees that do that for me. <laughs> I just arm them with the darts and throw the calendar out there and just say, "Boys, just let it rip." And, uh, but no, the twenty third of October is typically the start of what we call the pre rut, and this is when bucks are starting to kind of feel it. You know, their testosterone, which is the, the hormone that makes bucks happy and, and looking for love, are is starting to kind of build in their bodies, and they're out there making sign, rubs, and scrapes, but. The reason that we like this date is that they're still bucks are getting active, but they're staying within their home range. So if you're lucky enough to have a nice buck that you know about, and you're trying to target that specific deer, he's getting more active, but he isn't running all over the place. The rut can be pretty chaotic. They can, you know, they'll really start covering ground looking for does. But this pre-rut period is when they're, you know, actively seeking love and laying down sign, but they're staying faithful to kind of their core area or the place where they call home. So if you know of a deer that you're looking for, this is a great time to jump on it. All right. Now, you have one day
1: of the several days that you have covered in your article that you consider the overall best day of the rut, and it just happens to be Veterans Day, November 11th. Go ahead and tell our listeners about this.
2: Well, that's across much of cell Range. This is as close to peak breeding activity as you're going to get. That general time frame right around then is typically when the rut is At its fever pitch, most of the, I would say virtually all of the bucks in in an area will be highly active right now. You know, it's, it's interesting, mature bucks, the really old guys, they're pretty patient about breeding. I mean, they want it as much as the younger bucks do, but they just don't waste a lot of energy. And so they'll wait around and wait around until they know does are receptive and then they'll get after it. And this is the time that they'll start making mistakes when it's right on top of peak breeding. Last but not least, the secondary
1: rut, and and I think this is something a lot of folks don't even know about. Why don't you go ahead and explain why December 12th is your pick for a day to hunt if you want to get bucks in the secondary rut, and what is the secondary rut?
2: Yeah, it's a great question because it's, it is often overlooked, and it's kind of poo-pooed even by some deer hunters, and, and I think mostly it's because those are the guys that are tagged out. But if you're a mediocre to poor hunter like me, you're still out there trying for it. (laughs) And what happens in the secondary rut is any does that weren't bred during that peak event in November, they come into estrus another about 28 days or 30 days later. And also, as a bonus, any late-born fawns that haven't been bred in their you know, fawns are basically able to breed in their first year. So any, any late-born fawns that haven't entered estrus might be coming into estrus then. And so I've had some tremendous action in, in that December rut. It's typically, you know, you're not going to see the total chaotic movement that you will in November. But if you're lucky enough to find that estrus doe or does that are coming into heat in December, they're going to attract every buck for miles around. And it's really a pretty simple game. You just find out where deer are feeding, and most of them are really hungry this time of year. In December, it's cold across much of the country. And for a lot of deer, you know, the, the rut is largely over. Uh, they've been, you know, they've been chasing hard for over a month, and so they're hungry. So if you find the food and you get set up on it, uh, and you get a nestrous doe or fawn that comes in, then the buck activity can be pretty amazing. I've actually seen more mature bucks on their feet that time of year than I have in November, actually.
1: All right, well, if you want to find out more days that you ought to be in the field to take advantage of the rut and some great white deer hunting, the website to go to, fieldandstream.com. Check out Scott Bestel's article on this subject and subscribe and go ahead and read all sorts of great articles about fishing and hunting from what many consider to be America's premier magazine. Scott, thanks so much for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Oh, it was an honor, and
2: I'm excited for deer season, and I wish everyone tons of luck out there.
1: been telling you about Sportsman's Cove Lodge in southeast Alaska for a while now, and there's a reason. They are the only Alaska Lodge we talk about on this show. It's because they're truly Alaska's best lodge. The adventure starts with a float plane ride from Ketchikan, after which you'll get the chance to experience some of the best hospitality, food, and wonderful people you'll ever meet. Wildlife is abundant, from bears and deer to eagles and whales, and let's not forget the reason you're here, the fishing halibut, salmon, lingcod, rockfish, true cod, and more. It's all waiting for you in abundance at Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Book your trip today at alaskasbestlodge.com. That's alaskasbestlodge.com for Sportsman's Cove Lodge.
4: Hunting and fishing are exercises in hope. Before you head into the woods, you hope to tag out on a deer you'll have to field dress. Before you make that first cast, you hope for a big fish to clean and fillet. When your hopes are realized, you'll need a sharp knife. Whether you sharpen that blade on a power sharpener in the shop or a manual sharpener in the field, Sharp has the tool for you. Look for WorkSharp products in sporting goods stores near you or online at WorkSharpTools.com. In today's news, I'm cooking a brisket. Let's go to Jill at my house to see how it's going.
1: This is your house and you brought me and the crew to check on your brisket?
4: That's correct, Jill.
1: How's it looking? This is a Camp Chef Woodwind Wi-Fi. You know you you can check your cook right from your phone, right?
4: I didn't know that was an option, Jill. Well, never mind. But before you leave, can you feed the dog? What? No, no. When we get back, why is my check engine light on? The answer may shock me.
1: Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Hunting season is kicking off all over the United States, and a lot of folks are heading to the field with bows or muzzle loaders, or modern firearms. But have you ever considered hunting with a handgun? Well, you might want to. And one person who would highly recommend it is Ryan Hoover. He's the director of Handgun Hunters International, based in Fredericksburg, Texas. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, John. Why don't you tell our listeners what Handgun Hunters International is all about? Sure. Handgun Hunters International
5: is a membership organization that was originally founded in the late 70s by a guy named J.D. Jones. He's famous for making hand cannons out of Thompson Center contenders. Um, He shut down the organization in 2016, and I got wind of some of the things that they used to be up to. So I reached out to him, said, Hey, would you have any problems with me restarting this organization? And I did, and we launched in July 2021. J.D. no longer has anything to do with the organization. He just gave. me his blessing to kick it back off again. Our mission statement is to support and grow the handgun hunting community. We do that by our outreach through our members, trying to get the word out amongst other hunters and the industry about the awesome sport of handgun hunting. We do monthly giveaways of guns, gear, and ammo, which is one of my favorite parts about our organization. And we have a well-moderated online forum where my only rule is all you're required to be is polite, which is, uh, I think, makes us the best hunting and uh, outdoor sports form on the internet. <laughs> and uh, we're delving into making some media about, we want to get some one-on-one stuff out there about how to get into handgun hunters, because I believe there's a real opportunity for not only people who've been hunting for a while, but new hunters to get into the sport.
1: Well, I want to ask about that, because I think a lot of folks wouldn't even know how to go about it in terms of what kind of handgun do you buy? Are you, are you talking a revolver? Or are you talking to Semi automatic? Is it legal to hunt with a handgun in the state that you're in? You know, how do you go up the learning curve here so you can make an intelligent choice about what to buy and what accessories to use? Sure. So,
5: first of all, there are definitely, as with any type of hunting, you do need to match the type of weapon you take into the field to the type of game you're hunting. However, I will say there is some type of handgun hunting you can do with almost any handgun you have. So, you know, for instance, 22s. Great starter handguns. Everybody should own one. They're good for practice, good for developing your skills, great for small game. One of my favorite types of hunting is squirrel hunting. It's good for kids, it's good for new hunters, it's good for families to do together. And then, on the other hand, you know, one of the things that I always talk about we've had an explosion of gun ownership in the past uh, few years, and most of that has been defensive handguns. Now, I by no means suggest that you can take a defensive handgun gun, most defensive handguns, and go deer hunting with it. But you can find something to hunt. I always tell people, okay, think about it this way. If you practice enough to be good and you can shoot a rabbit at 10 or 15 paces with your 380 pocket pistol, you have just totally upped your confidence in using that gun. And you've developed some really, really good skills that are totally transferable to the defensive pistol world as well. Of course, Also, there are the traditional handguns, big bore revolvers, the single shots, the specialty pistols, and yes, absolutely, there are many semi-automatics there that are capable of getting into the field to take medium to large size game as well.
1: Let's talk about calibers for medium to large size game. It's not like they make pistols in .30-06 or .30-30, so what kind of calibers do you recommend if you're after deer or bear or something like that?
5: Well, first of all, let me correct you there. Actually, they do make pistols in 30 6 and 30 30 Two that come to mind, the Thompson Center, now a semi-defunct company. Unfortunately, Smith & Wesson bought them, and they're in the process of selling them. They have two pistols, the Contender and the Encore. Both of those were break-open single-shot pistols with the availability to swap barrels and swap calibers. And the Contender came in 30 30 and the Encore came in 30 6 So those are definitely viable. But getting back to, you know, your Question. Talking about a good packing belt gun, the minimum caliber that I recommend people start with to hunt medium sized game is the 357 Magnum. It's actually my favorite caliber to hunt with. I hunt mostly in central Texas where our deer are basically oversized rabbits. (laughs) So I don't, (laughs) and you know, it's not hard to kill a deer if you put it in the right spot. So the thing about handgun hunting is that it takes practice. So if you can put your 357 and keep yourself within the range that you have set your limits at then you can hunt with a 357 then then it goes up from there you know the 44 mag is probably if I only had to own one gun uh, it would be a 44 mag now you can load that down it can shoot 44 specials and you can go all the way up to Larry Kelly actually shot an elephant with one back in the 80s I believe it was not something that I would plan on doing but it just shows the capabilities.
1: Now, with handgun hunting, you've got to get close to your game. I mean, I'm guessing, you know, 50 yards is about the maximum for most people who are going to take a shot, isn't it?
5: So, with the range things, I wouldn't call it a myth, but it's not commonly known that handguns cross the gamut as far as range is concerned. Like I said, you can get specialty pistols in any rifle caliber, as a matter of fact, just as an aside, There is a competition in Wyoming called Y-Shot, and that is shot with bolt-action specialty pistols that are built basically like an old XP-100, which is a Remington action on a nice McMillan stock usually with a rifle scope. And we shoot out to, I think, the furthest target. The year I went was past 1,400 yards, and uh, we were were making hits on that. Now, again, by no means do I encourage people to hunt at that range. I enjoyed the challenge of getting close to game, but I only mention that as a kind of myth-buster fact about what handguns are capable of and what range. So really, your range depends on your capabilities. One of the great things about handgun hunting is the fact that you have to overcome a challenge in order to get into the field. And so the better you get, the more you challenge yourself, the more you can extend your range. I mean, these calibers are capable at ranges much further than 50 yards, but if you don't feel comfortable shooting past 50 yards, then you need to set your own self-imposed limit.
1: Do most handgun hunters put scopes on their handguns? And we're talking medium-sized to big game here. Do most handgun hunters put scopes on their handguns, or are they shooting over open sights?
5: That depends. You know... It depends on the kind of hunting you're doing, and it just depends on your preference. There are three major sight categories for handguns. Like you said, there are scopes, there are open sights, and a big and the fastest growing section, I think, is the red dots. So open sights are great because it obviously lowers your profile, lowers your weight, it's easier to pack, et cetera, et cetera, but they do limit your range the most, and they are the most difficult to use. Using open sights, I've always said, it's kind of like driving a stick shift. You know, everybody (laughs) should learn how to do it, but it is kind of the old way. And, you know, also as we get older and, becomes more difficult to see iron sights, but that's when a lot of people switch to the red dot. And there are some really compact red dots on the market today that, you know, easily extend your range. You know, if you're having trouble seeing your sights, it'll extend your range quite a bit. There are tube sights like that that look like traditional scopes, as well as the reflex type sight with an open screen. Moving on from there, definitely there are pistol scopes. There are some great pistol scopes out there and they can increase your magnification You know, when you're talking about a little bit further range, a little bit more open country, et cetera. So it's all a matter of personal choice, again. And one of the great things about it is that there are so many options that most handgun hunters are also kind of, you know, collectors of all these different pieces of gear as well.
1: We have got to go, but I'll tell you what, you have schooled me today, and I think you've taught our listeners a lot, too. And, folks, if you want to find out more about Handgun Hunters International, go to their website, handgunhuntersinternational.com. That's handgunhuntersinternational.com, and consider getting into the sport of hunting with a handgun and joining this organization. Ryan, thanks for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio.
5: Thank you, John.
0: Ready to step up to a quality-built rifle or shotgun that's a true classic? Check out Henry Repeating Arms, American-made. There's over 200 models to choose from in a variety of finishes and calibers for hunters and target shooters. Many of these are lever-action models with a look right out of the Old West. Don't be deceived, though. Henry Repeating Arms are modern, rugged, accurate, reliable, and have a lifetime guarantee. Find out more and order a free catalog today at henryusa.com. That's henryusa.com.
1: You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is Illinois. That's where we get to talk to Trevor Hubs. He is a former U.S. Army infantryman and airborne soldier who served at Fort Bragg. And now he is helping out backcountry hunters and anglers with their Armed Forces Initiative. Trevor, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for
3: having me. Really excited to be here.
1: So folks, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, as you know, we are a big supporter of this organization because they're all about protecting our public lands and protecting our access to public lands so that we as hunters and anglers and outdoors enthusiasts can roam these lands that belong to each and every one of us. But BHA started a program a few years ago called the Armed Forces Initiative, and they are specifically targeting active duty military to join BHA and and actually running events for them. Tell us more about why this decision was made and and what this program looks like.
3: Yeah, I'd love to. So BHA was kind of started. There's always been about two military members on the national board, starting with Colorado, which was the first state chapter. But it's kind of interesting. We ran our annual membership survey, which is trying to get an idea of who our members are, why they joined BHA so we can continue to do the things that please our members. But we realized about 18% of BHA members were either active duty military, veterans, National Guard, reservists, or uh, like Gold Star families. Which is interesting because if you look at, uh, depending on the survey you look at, between 4 and 5% of the general population is part of that military community. So that was in 2018, we started to think about, okay, why are we as an organization attracting so many military members? So we started to dig into that question throughout 2019 and early 2020. And there's a whole litany of reasons, one being you just don't make that much money in the military and uh, not everybody can afford to buy their 80 acres of whitetail paradise in Missouri or southern <laughs> Illinois. So you're kind of forced to public land. The bigger piece, though, especially with the last 22 years of warfare, is you're, everybody is on a three-year rotation where you have a year of training, a year of deployment, and then a year of rest, and then you change duty stations. So now you're born in you know, southern Illinois, you get stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina— And, oh, I don't know how to hunt hogs. We don't have wild hogs here. We don't have black bears where I grew up. How do you do that? They have wild trout streams, another thing that you never experience, but you don't really get to because you're training all the time. Then you'll have a deployment or two deployments, and then you get back, and you change duty stations. Now you're at Fort Carson, Colorado. Well, now they have elk. Now they have, like, real high mountain trout streams. How do you do that? And what ends up happening is, like with me, I didn't hunt or fish almost the whole time I was in the military. And that happens just Way too often, you have guys that get out or gals that get out after 20 years of service that maybe grew up hunting and fishing, and then they haven't for 20 years. So really the AFI is about kind of reactivating or retaining these hunters and anglers and helping them learn to use their voice for conservation.
1: So the chapters actually exist on military installations. What installations have active chapters?
3: So it depends on what you consider an active chapter. For a long time, well, the first couple of years, we were looking at uh, what chapter is Department of Defense sanctioned to operate on a military base. Well, we kind of moved away from that because the only thing that gets us is uh, it's like a year or even 18-month-long application process. And all we really gain is the ability to fundraise on post, where we can still have a chapter on a post that just does their fundraising at the local VFW or Columbus, Georgia, whatever city is most adjacent to Post. So if you just count how many clubs we have on active de- installations, it's 48. Oh, wow.
1: That's if, impressive. Yeah.
3: We're really growing. We started with our first event in eastern Montana doing a mule deer hunt in 2020 with 18 people. And uh, I just ran the numbers before this call to try and get prepared. Now we have 9,800 active memberships within VHA.
1: Oh, that's fantastic! Ninety-eight hundred members, and BHA I think is closing on fifty thousand members total. So that's quite a few active-duty military or reserves or National Guard soldiers that are part of this. That's a huge percentage.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. It's uh, it has grown a lot faster. We rely very heavily. It's BHA. We're a grassroots organization, so we rely very heavily on our volunteers and. I have a couple main volunteers we call our advisory board for the Armed Forces Initiative. And they've went from like I have one guy who manages like installations and then one guy who manages all like veteran reserve National Guard kind of more off installation activities. And they've each gone from managing about six people, like six other volunteers to managing 20 plus in the past year. It's uh, It's been some outstanding growth.
1: What do these clubs do in terms of the military members? Are they holding, like, monthly meetings? Are they having, like, you know, hunts that they go out on together or fishing trips? Go ahead and describe what a typical club does on one of these military installations.
3: Sure. I mean, I leave it really open. I'm a big fan of commander's intent, which is just kind of leave it general. And if, if what you're doing kind of meets that commander's intent, then you're not wrong. So the commander's intent that I have for uh, the Armed Force Initiative, you can just find it on the website, but... uh to instill within members of the military community a knowledge of conservation practices and theory, a love of wild places, and a desire to elevate Americans' public wild lands as fundamental components of American freedom. So really, that could be anything, right? Like Fort Benning, Fort Stewart, Georgia, you could take eight or nine guys out bluegill fishing and walk through like, hey, this is why I like to pan fish in the South. This is what we use for equipment. This is what I need for licensing and teach them how to do that. Well, you could go up to our Alaska group, like we have three bases in Alaska, and they have a uh, either roadkill moose, elk, or caribou donated by um, Alaska Fish and Game. They donate a roadkill large mammal, and every month they do a large animal breakdown class in Alaska. So you just got stationed in Fort Wainwright. Well, great. I can get moose tags really easy now, but I've never dealt with a moose. This is a 2,000-pound animal. Like, now you know how to do that. So it's really, it's dependent on where you're stationed and the local kind of outdoor recreation opportunities there. Our goal really isn't these once-in-a-lifetime hunts. There's a lot of organizations doing that, and that's a great thing to do for veterans. Like, oh, we're going to take you on this super-exclusive elk hunt or moose hunt, and it normally costs $50,000, but we're going to give it to you for free because you're a veteran. Like, Those are great. What the Armed Forces Initiative really does is we try and create a lifetime of experiences by making you into a passionate outdoor conservationist or hunter or angler. So it's what can you do tomorrow or the next weekend or the next season? How do I give you all the skills so that you're not dependent on a nonprofit or some sort of veterans group to go elk hunting again or to go whitetail hunting again? When you leave one of our events, I want you to have all those skills to go do this on your own.
1: Trevor, this is absolutely fantastic. I wish something like this existed when I was in the service, but I'm sure glad it exists now. In fact, Trevor, I understand you've got some events going on right now. What are those?
3: Yeah, right now we've got, we call it a garbage and grouse roundup, which is basically an introduction to upland hunting at uh, around Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. And then we try and pick up as much trash as we can. Normally, it's let's spend the morning when it's a little cooler out picking up trash. And in the afternoon, let's go chase some grouse and learn why we don't want trash on the prairie and why less trash equals more grouse and things like that. We also have uh, an event around uh, Key West Naval Air Station. We've got, I think it's 18 uh, veterans, active duty members out there uh doing some flats fishing on the Gulf side of the Keys, so it's a, it's a
1: great time. How many events did you have planned for this year, and how many are actually going to happen?
3: So when I took over in 2021, my goal for 2022 was six events, and we're going to cross the 100-event mark by the end of the year.
1: Incredible. Now, for all of our military members and veterans that are listening today, if you want to get involved, go to backcountryhunters.org. That's the website for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And if you're not a member already, I would really recommend joining this great organization. And then go to the programs page and look for Armed Forces Initiative. You'll find all sorts of information about this. And if they have questions, who should they ask, who should they contact about getting involved with a local club?
3: Yeah, I'm... Happy to field all questions. You can either email me directly, which is just H-U-B-B-S at BackcountryHunters.org, just my last name, or you can email Armed Forces Initiative at BackcountryHunters.org, and that's a general email that is answered by me uh, or one of our interns or somebody on the operations team, whoever can get to it first.
1: It's the Armed Forces Initiative from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers helping our soldiers, our sailors, our airmen and women become passionate conservationists and hunters while they serve our country. Trevor, thanks for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you, sir. This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at WorkSharp. And if you are hunting this fall, you know the importance of a sharp knife. You're going to need it for gutting that animal, butchering that animal, taking the hide off that animal, and there's a good chance you have to sharpen it more than once while you're doing these things in the field. That's why a pocket knife sharpener or the guided field sharpener from WorkSharp are great items to have with you. Whether you're after deer, elk, pronghorn, or bear, a sharp knife helps you get things done after you drop that animal. Look for WorkSharp products at sporting goods stores, hardware stores, and ranch and home stores near you, or online at WorkSharpTools.com. That's WorkSharpTools.com.
4: country hunters and anglers. You may have heard of us, but what are we about? BHA is the voice for your wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. From national level policy work to boots on the ground projects like public land cleanups, we work across North America to uphold the legacy of our public lands and waters, as well as your opportunity to hunt, fish, and recreate on them. Stand up for public lands and waters and become a BHA member today. Visit backcountryhunters.org.
1: We've been telling you about Sportsman's Cove Lodge in southeast Alaska for a while now. They're truly Alaska's best lodge. Wildlife is abundant, from bears and deer to eagles and whales. And let's not forget the reason you're here, the fishing. Halibut, salmon, lingcod, rockfish, true cod, and more. It's all waiting for you in abundance at Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Book your trip today at alaskasbestlodge.com. That's alaskasbestlodge.com for Sportsman's Cove Lodge
0: campers adventure seekers
1: hunters and foodies no matter
0: the lifestyle we can all agree on one thing great food and great people are worth remembering at camp chef we don't just make grills we create each product knowing that a warm meal is always better when it's shared with those we love learn more about camp chef grills smokers and portable cooking equipment at campchef.com that's campchef.com for a better way to cook outdoors
1: Next up on America Outdoors Radio, we're taking you to the centennial state of Colorado. That's where Jay Brecky is a veterinarian, and he is also an avid upland bird hunter. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a really good article that appeared in the latest On the Wing newsletter from Pheasants Forever, and it was all about a carry kit and a truck kit that are essentially first aid kits for your hunting dog. And I want to go over some of the highlights here, and we'll start off with last September. You and a friend are way up in the mountains hunting for ptarmigan and grouse. With your two hunting dogs, what happens? Yeah, so recently
6: I've gotten into ptarmigan hunting, which is involves alpine terrain, which can be pretty sharp rocks and long distances. And so basically I noticed that dogs' feet just don't hold up like they would in in grass or prairie fields. And yeah, I have a German short hair pointer who uh, within a day and a half of the trip really started to get some red kind of bloody paws just from the rocky terrain. I mean, it even tears up our own boots. And so one of the things I like to carry in my field kit, because I don't always have booties on my dogs. Sometimes they can lose a lot of uh, feeling with just control of jumping around on rocks. And so sometimes they can actually hurt themselves more. So I prefer them to Kind of have their paws out, but basically, I like to have uh, different types of bandage material that are light and easy to carry in your vest. Different layers of just different uh, materials, but the the key is a good ointment. And so, in 2015, I went to a veterinary seminar where I sat in and listened to a board certified veterinary dermatologist who spoke very highly of what's called Manuka honey, which is a type of Honey that has very strong antibacterial properties, but also is a soothing salve. And so the kind that we carry has a coconut oil, manuka, honey mixture. And it's good to put on dog's paws because it's not irritating to the stomach if they lick it off. But more importantly, prevents infection and just kind of helps create a nice, healthy paw no different than if you did Vaseline or aquifer on wounds for yourself and so putting that on on that ptarmigan hunt and then wrapping the paws lightly when I realized she was in a lot of pain just from too much rock country allowed us to get down to kind of a creek bottom which was kind of soggy marshy kind of moose country and then we walked back to camp that way and so so yeah I, I really like just kind of very basic things such as that for tilled care when you're kind of in the middle of nowhere and you want something light so don't don't want to make it too heavy
1: Let's talk about what would have happened if you didn't have this carry kit with you, because you were six miles from camp. You were further away from that to civilization, where you could have gotten some help. I mean, you would have had to carry this dog for six miles if you couldn't do this. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, it was a pretty empty feeling when I noticed she was in front of me. I can see
6: the the rocks had a little bit of her blood on it, and she was she was whining. And so... So yeah, being able to wrap it is no different than, you know, if you were barefoot putting on a nice pair of shoes to kind of protect it. But yeah, I you know, always recommend to have some type of bandage material because you can also use it on yourself, but also you can wrap the paws of your dog so that you can get to safety because the trip needed to be ended, but there was really no, I still needed to get her out comfortably. And so luckily with that kid, I was able to kind of bushwalk down to softer terrain that, that made it all happen.
1: Well, I'm glad you didn't have to haul your 40-pound German short hair pointer.
6: No, and you know, there's people that talk about some of these new upland vests that you can put dogs in and you can carry them out, and I was almost to that point, but my vest wasn't made for a dog, but I would have found a way to carry her out if needed. Wow. But, uh, yeah.
1: So let's go through what you recommend hunters carry in their carry kit that's with them that's, you know, lightweight, we're not talking about a lot of weight here, but can help bandage up a dog if they get wounded, whether it be their paws or otherwise, until you can get them back somewhere where you can either see a vet or give them some more extensive care from your truck kit?
6: Yeah, so something that's good in the vest. A salve, like what we just spoke about, that's a plus, but it's not always necessary. I just feel like it helps with inflammation and preventing any type of infections from the cuts, but you basically just want a nice type of sterile pad that is no different than that you put over any of our wounds to kind of be the base coverage and then you want to use some type of netting gauze that we have it's called cast wrap it's really soft easy to carry that's going to be your first layer over a band-aid basically and then everybody's heard of that wrap which is a type of kind of elasticon wrap that comes in multiple colors that then can kind of finish the job and you actually can cinch it down a little tighter. Keep in mind, you will get paw swelling if it's too much. though. So you want to make sure that you watch the paw and there's not a lot of swelling because you can cut off circulation and they start limping. And then the last one is what's called Elasticon. Elasticon is a type of kind of tannish tape that has a red line down the middle of it. And that red line is for you to put half the tape on the bandage, half the tape on the dog. So it's easy to peel off, but it, it keeps the bandage from sliding down. So those are the the four layers that I like to use. And that's pretty much all you need. And then you obviously you can carry a skin stapler if you need, but sometimes if you're out in the woods like that, you can just put a bandage on and lather it up. And then once you get back to your truck, then you can get out the skin stapler. So I just like to limit it to those four things. and That usually gets the job done.
1: All right. Well, that's fantastic. I love the idea of this Manuka honey salve. Definitely going to have to check that out and consider that instead of Neosporin. And folks, yep. if you want to read the rest of this article and find out what Jay recommends you carry in your truck kit, just go to Pheasants Forever and look for this article. And if you haven't signed up to be a member of Pheasants Forever, you really should. Again, this article is in the latest On the Wing newsletter. So check it out again, the website to go to, PheasantsForever.org. Jay, thanks so much for sharing your story with us today and your advice on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you. This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at Henry Repeating Arms, and if you are looking for a new rifle or shotgun for the season ahead, look no further than henryusa.com. There's over 200 models available. A lot of them are lever-action rifles and shotguns, too, and they all have a few things in common. Number one, they are all made in America. Number two... They are all rugged, they're all reliable, they're all accurate, they shoot straight right out of the box, and they come with a lifetime satisfaction guarantee. So, check out the lineup that's available, look for a dealer near you. If you have any questions, just ask the award-winning customer service staff, and don't forget to ask for your free decals and catalog, too. You can do it all at henryusa.com.
0: It's time for the Trail of Shame.
1: Shame, shame on you. Shame, shame on you.
0: Stories of poachers, scoundrels, and other ne'er do wells. So, if you see someone committing a criminal act on the water or in the field, turn them in. (coughs) It's the right thing to do.
1: This week on our Trail of Shame, we tell you about two illegal hunting guides who not only lost a lot, they even lost the horses they rode in on. It all happened back in August of 2019, when the Oregon State Police met David Ravia, 69 years old, from Dayton, Washington, and Caleb Richmond, 48 years old, from McMinnville, Oregon. They were at a trailhead getting ready to lead a pack string of six mules carrying hunters and gears towards a remote camp in the Hell's Canyon National Recreation Area. The Oregon State Police got wind of this illegal guiding operation through their turn-in poachers reward program. And they soon found out that Ravia and Richmond had been illegally guiding hunters in this area for deer and elk without a guide's license for 10 years, primarily catering to clients from out of state. The case concluded this year after both suspects pled guilty to several counts of failing to register as an outfitter and guide. Two of the six mules initially seized ended up being forfeited, to the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, which will likely use them to stock high lakes with trout. Why is illegal guiding a problem? Well, because it takes away from legitimate guides and their clients who have tags and are looking to get a quality deer or elk. If you're aware of people that are illegally guiding for fish or game, be sure to turn them in. They're not doing anybody any favors. shame on you. On that note, it's time to wrap things up. I would like to thank our guests, Dr. Brecky, Trevor Hubbs, Scott Bestel, and Ryan Hoover. They were all fantastic and provided us with some great education and information. And if you're looking for something to do as a Saturday listener, keep in mind, this is National Public Lands Day. Federal lands and a lot of state lands that usually charge entry fees, they are open for you to use today. So Head on out to our public lands and enjoy them. They are our lands. Until next week, here's hoping you are blessed and you are healthy. And remember this, it is your country and you're outdoors. So get out there and enjoy it. (laughs)
0: To step up to a quality built rifle or shotgun that's a true classic? Check out Henry Repeating Arms, American made. There's over 200 models to choose from in a variety of finishes and calibers for hunters and target shooters. Many of these are lever action models with a look right out of the old west. Don't be deceived though. Henry Repeating Arms are modern, rugged, accurate, reliable, and have a lifetime guarantee. Find out more and order a free catalog today
1: at henryusa.com. That's henryusa.com.